salvation full and free highest hills and deepest caves this our song of victory Jesus saves Jesus saves oh yes you sound so good you may be seated as we continue rock of ages Again, 
trust and Brother Jack Wong, come share with us a moment, please. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jack Wong, in case you don't know. But uh, anyway, Raymond asked me a few days ago to speak a little bit about uh, my journey with cancer. Um, so I, you know, not reluctantly, but yeah, I'm glad to do it and uh, really more than glad, really encouraged to do it. So uh, anyway, my cancer, I was diagnosed back in 2012, in November of 2012 with pancreatic cancer. Um, that's a pretty grim diagnosis for most people. But I remember that day that I was diagnosed, I was in the hospital in my room and uh, doing a lot of praying. And I, you know, just asked God to just help me get through this and whatever happened in the next few days few weeks few months I was just going to leave it in his hands and to this day he has shown himself really mighty and strong in my life and as you can tell I'm still here you know most people that have that diagnosis you know don't have you know really that long to live so but I'm still here thank God but anyway I just want to give you a few insights about what's happened with me over the last few years. Uh, like I said, he showed himself mighty and strong in my life. Uh, number one, after I found out I was diagnosed with the cancer, the doctors told me that, you know, typical, I would only have eight to 12 months to live. And you see, I'm still here. Uh, so God just saw fit to say, no, it's not time for you to go. You know, you're going to stay here for a while. So I am still here. They told me my cancer was inoperable. I couldn't have surgery, but in 2013, I did have surgery. And I got through that surgery, thank God. Um, so, you know, they removed all the cancer, but in 2015, they found another growth in my liver, which is still there. It is inoperable. <laughs> so I'm still living with that. But through all of that, I'm saying that you know, the doctors, you know, have uh, given me chemotherapy. I've tried clinical trials, you know, all kinds of, you know, medical approaches. But in all that, to say that God has really helped me through that because he's helped me through the side effects, which if any of you have had chemotherapy, you have relatives that have had chemotherapy, you know that, you know, there are side effects to the medicines. And each and every time that I've had side effects, God has helped me get through that. Uh, he's changed my medications from time to time, but each medication has really helped. So, and I'm still here today. Uh, in fact, I've just gotten off my last treatment, which has been a uh, type of radioisotope, which I haven't found out the results of that yet, but I feel great. Uh, he's enabled me to work, which, you know, a lot of people with cancer don't have that opportunity to do. Uh, he's given me the chance to encourage other people, you know, witness to my patients. Uh, and I've had the privilege to work on the oncology floor at the hospital. And being able to tell or share my story with them has encouraged me as well as encouraged them. So I thank God for that. Uh, one thing that, or a couple of things that really um, I take away from my journey with cancer is this. Number one is uh, the security of my salvation. I know I'm a child of the Most High God. Uh, I know where I'm going to spend eternity when I leave here, and I'm ready to go. I mean, in my next breath, if I drop right here on the floor, you know, I'm good with that. My family's good with that, you know, that I've come to terms with. Number two is the power of prayer. Uh, you know, we talk about that a lot. Raymond talks about it all the time. We talk about it in Sunday school. But the power of prayer, I'm here to tell you today that it worked. I'm a testimony to that. Two weeks after I was diagnosed with the cancer, they had a prayer vigil over at my house. Some of the people 
were there are here in this room today, and they can tell you that the majority of the prayers were that, you know, that I would still be here, you know, and I'm still here. So that tells you and lets you know that God answers prayers. God answers the prayers of his children, and he hears and he acts on those prayers. Uh, another thing I take away from it is the fact that I spend more time with God now, more than I ever did before. Uh, Raymond has always sp spoken from the pulpit that, you know, we need to be in the Word, reading the Bible. And in 2011, I started reading the Bible, you know, yearly, like Raymond was encouraging us to do. And I read it every year since then. But each and every time I read, and you say, well, man, you've read the Bible a lot in the last, you know, nine or ten years. But yes, I have. But each and every time I read a passage of Scripture, even though I've read it over and over and over, I get a new sense, a new feeling of the meaning of those passages. You know, uh, I don't know how many of you are doing it, but I encourage you to do it if you're not, to take up your Bible, spend time in the Word. Remember what God says is in the beginning was the Word. You know, and God is the Word. And how are you going to get to know God if you don't spend time in the Word? So I just want to leave you with this. And uh, a group of, or a passage of Scripture that has really helped me through these last years is Psalms 34. When David says, uh, his praise is always on my lips. I will praise him at all times. He says, my whole being praises the Lord. It says, the poor will hear and be glad. It says, glorify the Lord with me. Let us praise his name together. It said, I asked the Lord for help, and he answered me. He saved me from all that I feared. It says, happy are those to go to the Lord for help, and they are never disgraced. It said, this poor man called, and God answered him. He saved me from all my troubles. It says, the angel of the Lord camps around those who fear God. And he saves me. Thank you. Amen. Thank you, Jack. And your emphasis on prayer leads in so well. What we want to do right now is to pray for one another. And uh, uniquely, what we're going to ask is if this month, uh, October or September is your birthday, if you would just remain seated. And then everybody else stand up. It'll be easy to find those who have a birthday. If your birthday is last month or this month, just stay seated. And we want everybody around those people to just pray over them. You've heard what Jack said. You can pray some of the things he talked about. We know the greatest thing we can do with our life is to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. That's one thing that we can pray for. We know in John 17, 3, that eternal life means to know God. So we can pray that, that people would know God. I hope someone will pray over each one of these individuals out loud. We need to hear that people are praying for us. And uh, if you're a guest, don't think you're excluded. If this is your birthday month, you just stay in the seat. We want to pray for you. So if your birthday is this month or last month, stay in your seat. Everybody else, surround them and take a moment to pray for them.
alive forevermore. Your death on the cross was not the end. It needed to happen because you needed to take our sins on yourself. But you have victory over sin and death. You rose again. You're victorious and we can live victorious lives because of what you've done for us. May we not live in fear. May we rejoice over your grace, your mercy, your love, the fact that you have redeemed us. May we tell the world. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe more than most of the messages that we have had through the book of John, I hope today God gives us a great interruption in each of our lives, a wonderful interruption as we talk about my favorite word, the telestai. It hangs up in my closet. Jeff and Renee gave me a beautiful placard of this several years ago, and it hangs prominently where I work probably more than any other place, and that's in my closet, the clawfus, closet office. I love this word. It means so much, and I hope in the, the coming minutes it will come to mean something special to you as well. It's one word, four syllables, means everything. This morning, I'm hopeful that you can participate with me in this message. From time to time, I'm going to ask you to repeat a phrase. He did that for me. I want us to personalize the experience that we are about to have as we think about Christ dying for us. So several different times during the message, I'll just say, he did that for me. So let's practice together. He did Perfect. This morning as we go to John chapter 19, verses 16 through 30, we look at the final experience of Jesus on the cross. First of all, we'll see the agony and shame that he experienced. Look at verses 16 in 18, in John chapter 19, it says that the soldiers then took charge of Jesus. Pilate has now turned Jesus over to his soldiers, and they took charge because they knew exactly what needed to happen next. These were professionals. They were experts. They knew how to kill people. They knew how to torture people, and their job was to crucify him. It was a process. It says carrying his own cross, that meant that the victim would have to carry the cross beam of the cross. We've seen all these beautiful pictures of Jesus carrying a full cross, and we don't need to lose that picture, but in reality, he probably just carried the top beam of the cross. It weighed about 100 pounds. The strategy was that the person would be forced to carry the cross all the way through the city to the place. Jesus carrying his own cross went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Crucifixion was originated by the Persians, and it was perfected by the Romans because they wanted something that would prolong the agony of torture. It was so brutal, so vicious, so vile that no Roman citizen could be crucified except for the emperor giving the order. Jesus was taken out to the place called the skull. You see the picture there. Looks kind of strange, doesn't it? That is Gordon's Calvary. Many believe that to be the place where Jesus was actually crucified. Some had said that it was called the skull because of the executions that took place there and very well could have been. But if you look closely at the rocks there, you can almost see the features of a skull. I found it very ironic when I was there back in, uh, in 1981 that all the, there's a bus station right there on this, what would have been such holy ground. Jesus didn't create that place for it to become an icon of worship. He died there to redeem us from our sins. Skull in Greek is rendered Calvary as a transliteration from the Latin. What would take place in the events of crucifixion? 
As a person, as you well know, their hands would be nailed to the crossbeam and then affixed to the rest of the, the, the apparatus, and then the feet would be nailed to the cross. If they wanted to extend agony for a long period of time, they would put a, a little shelf on there in which the person being crucified could sit, and that would keep them and prolong them from dying. Cramps would set in. There would be unlimited pain. Never would pain ever stop. There'd be the constant anxiety uh, to fight against suffocation because you were always just one breath away from that. There was constant searing pain because of the way that it was set up. You would naturally droop down because of the pain and the agony and the wear and tear on the human body. But then you would have to pull your hands up, pull your body up by your hands with the nails driven through them and push against the nails driven through your feet to try to get a breath of air. And eventually, the pericardium would slowly fill with fluid, and there would be pressure on the heart, and the victim would finally die. Death was both the victim's friend as well as enemy. You would be fighting to stay alive, fighting against the enemy of death to stay alive, but simultaneously longing for it to be your friend so that you could die. Some people would last as much as a week on the cross. But we're explaining all that a lot more than John did. John knew that all of his readers knew exactly what crucifixion was about because they were a part of the Roman Empire and it was prevalent. But John doesn't dwell on the physical suffering of Christ because he wants us to see that he is the conquering king. In John chapter 20, verse 31, we have seen the purpose statement of John writing this gospel, that he wants us to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is our only hope, as we have just sung. And in him, we would place all of our trust, and we would find life in his name. As Jesus went to the cross, he took the place of Barabbas. More than likely, the two thieves that were nailed beside him were a part of Barabbas' gang. And Barabbas was supposed to be on the middle cross because that was a cross that was reserved for the greatest disgrace. It was a position of disgrace. And so as you think about it, Jesus literally died in the place of Barabbas. But he did so to fulfill Scripture. That's what John wants us to see. Remember John chapter 3, verse 14? Jesus said, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, they all knew of that experience in which the, the serpents had gone throughout the camp and many people were dying. And Moses created a bronze serpent under the instruction of, of God and he held it up and whoever looked upon that with faith would be saved from the serpents. And Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so will the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross. John chapter 12, verse 32, verse 32, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. It's hard to imagine that all that could be said about crucifixion, John simply said, there they crucified him, because he wants us to see something far deeper than the physical pain. He wants us to see the agony and the shame of what Christ did for you and me. Agony and shame, he did that for me. We probably need to do that again. This is a statement that you are giving to the Lord, not to appease a, a pastor. But this is a statement that you give to the Lord of gratitude for what he has done. Agony and shame. John chapter 19 Verses 19 through 22, we see the rejection that Jesus suffered. It says that Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. And this notice would be something that would have probably been around the neck of Jesus or it would have been marched in front of him as the soldiers paraded him through the town. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, three languages of the day, so that no one could miss the message. Verse 21, it says the chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. But Pilate answered, what I have written, 
I have written. Roman law required that the crime be written to warn others. Crucifixion was used as a tremendous deterrent. So the victim would wear the signage or the soldier would march in front of them declaring what they had done wrong. It was to remind people that you never want to cross Rome. They would take the longest route possible so that there would be the greatest effect of deterrent. But notice this. They would take the longest route in addition so that anybody along the route might be able to speak in their defense. Nobody did. The religious leaders, it says in the original language, kept on asking. It's like a two-year-old repeating the phrase over and over and over, coming to Pilate. They didn't want Jesus to be identified as their king, so they wanted the sign to say, he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate was getting the last word on the Jews who had put him on the horns of a dilemma in which he couldn't escape. Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth was in an insignificant, insignificant Galilean village. Do you remember Nathaniel's response to Philip when he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what people believed. And here was Pilate making a mockery of the Jews to say, this is a king that you rejected. They had rejected Jesus just like they had rejected God during the time of Samuel, in which they said, we want a king like all of the other nations. They didn't want Jesus to be their king. Pilate had made a, a legal decision, which could not be changed. The religious leaders of the Jews are trying to change the law of Rome, if you can imagine that. They got exactly what they asked for, didn't they? They told Pilate, he said, he's king of the Jews. And so Pilate put it down in writing in all three languages of the people and nailed it to the cross. Pilate said, in our modern-day parlance, it is what it is. This one is on you, not me. You have rejected your king of the Jews. You have killed him. This is on you you. Jesus suffered rejection. He did that for me. John chapter 19 verses 23 through 24, we see the disgrace that is put upon Jesus when it says the soldiers crucified Jesus and then they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each one of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. John wants us to see that what is being experienced is the fulfillment of what God's divine plan has always been. He takes us back to Psalm 22, verse 18 stating that they would indeed divide up his garments and they would cast lots for his inner garment. John wants us to believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. See, it was a custom of the Roman soldiers to divide up the clothes of the victim. There would be four soldiers on the detail of a crucifixion. In addition, there would be an officer and a centurion. And on this particular detail, as they began to go through the clothing, which would have been a headpiece, a sash, the sandals, the outer garment, and the belt, as they began to divide that up, they came to the inner garment. It was seamless. And so they said, let's not tear it up. Let's cast lots, just as was predicted a thousand years before. Look at the disgrace that is taking place there. They won't tear the inner garment of Jesus because it's more valuable not being torn when it's in one piece, yet they are crucifying the Son of God. His inner garment was won by one of those soldiers. It reminds us of how Jesus' righteousness, the garment that he wore next to his body, it reminds us of how the righteousness of Jesus covers undeserving people like you and me. Disgrace 
the next few verses, 25 through 27, we see the sinless perfection of Jesus. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Mary won't let her son die alone. No mother would. She ran the risk of being taken as an accessory to Jesus, but she stood there by the cross, as did those three other ladies. She must have been thinking about what Simeon had said when they took Jesus to the temple Luke chapter 2, verse 35, that this baby would pierce her soul. Not her heart, but her soul. The very core of who she was. Her soul was being torn in two. And John's mother was at the cross. There is John standing with Jesus' mother and his mother, and two other ladies, four women, standing there like four soldiers. James and John were first cousins to Jesus. So Jesus was entrusting Mary to his cousin and her nephew. And when you look at that scenario, you, you can't help but wonder, here is a man dying in extreme agony, Yet he has the presence of mind and the, and, the, and the purity of heart to look down to care for his mother. He is fulfilling the fifth commandment in Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and mother. He knew it was his responsibility to care for his mom, and now that he was dying and their relationship was changing, he wanted to make sure that John took care of her, and he did. Everything in history tells us that he did exactly as Jesus had asked. Many say that they are keeping the Ten Commandments for their salvation. Yet here we see that Jesus is the only one who never broke a one of them. He was sinless perfection on the cross. From noon to three, we know that there was this strange darkness that came over Calvary. The darkness was a reminder that this was the opposite of number 6, 24 through 26. It was a reminder that God was actually turning his face away from his son. He could not face the sin and the curse that was being uh, taking place on the cross. And the strange darkness reminds us that Jesus was sinless perfection. That's the only reason the darkness came, because God was turning his face from the sinfulness. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was the embodiment of sinless perfection and in these last verses as we wrap up today, we see the triumph of Jesus. In John 19, 28 through 30, it says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, Jesus understood Scripture. He knew exactly what was to play out. He knew what was happening had not lost presence of mind even in the mind-numbing pain of the crucifixion. Knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. So a jar of wine vinegar was there. They soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It's important for us to remember, to know that what Jesus drank in that moment was not the drugged wine that he was offered at the beginning of the crucifixion. In a sick way of offering some level of pity on those who were crucified, they would be offered a drugged wine that would somehow dull the pain of the crucifixion. And you recall that Jesus declined that because he wanted to face what was happening with all of his mind. He refused that, but this wine was not drugged. It's what the soldiers would drink. And so, 
They dipped down a sponge on a hyssop branch, and they give it to Jesus. What the soldiers drank, Jesus drank, because Jesus was a soldier securing our victory. If you recall the hyssop branch in Exodus chapter 12, verse 22, that was what was used to spread the blood of the Passover lamb over the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over. Jesus said that he would be the Passover lamb. It's amazing to be standing at the cross with the religious leaders there mocking him and all of Scripture being played out and all of these pictures playing out in front of them, all of these things happening, and yet they don't seem to recognize that he is the Savior. It says that when he took that drink, then he said, it is finished. Present tense means it stands finished and remains so forever. Nothing can be added to what Christ done and nothing can be subtracted from what. And nothing needs to be done. But you know, in the quietness of this room, we miss the moment. One of the greatest agonies of crucifixion, if you can imagine, with all of the searing pain that they endured, one of the greatest agonies was a thirst. The body would be completely dehydrated. The tongue would stick to the top of the mouth, searing, terrible, horrible thirst. Jesus, knowing full well that he can't speak the way that he needs and knowing what Scripture says, I thirst, he takes that one last sip. And then when it says he said, it means he cried out at the top of his lungs, to Tetelestai, it is finished and forever remains so. If our redemption is not finished, then we have to do something else. But the truth is we can't do anything else to earn or maintain our salvation. There's no checklist to keep. There is only faith to be had in Christ. You know, it says that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit after he had cried out this enormous, victorious statement. He gave up his spirit. It says that he bowed his head. In the literal language, it means that he laid his head back on the cross like laying it on a pillow. We recall earlier in the Gospels when Jesus said, I have no place to lay my head. He finally found his place. And he laid his head back on the cross. But here, the chronology of what John writes. He laid his head back on the cross, and then he gave up his spirit. He didn't just die and his head flopped back. He leaned back, and with the power that only God has, he gave up his spirit. As we go back to John chapter 10, verse 18, it's written in the active verb to mean he voluntarily gave up his life. We go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we're reminded of the great messianic passage there, right in the beginning, in the same chapter as the curse, to say that the serpent will bruise the heel of the Messiah, but the Messiah will crush his head. Friends, we have no worry or no concern that we must do something else to gain God's favor. There's nothing we can do or not do to change him. God is not some temperamental father that is always changing his moods based upon our actions or our inactions. Jesus cried to tell us die. We're told that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Just look at your hand for a second. That's the width of the temple veil. It's not like a little piece of shear that could have accidentally torn. It's that thick. That's how thick the veil was, and it tore from top to bottom. An earthquake came, and it was an unbelievable moment. Statement of triumph. Let me give you one other. Ancient documents tell us that this word to telestai was used by a father sending a son on a mission. And he wasn't to return until the mission was accomplished. 
And when he had finished the mission, he would return to the Father and he would say, to tell us die. Can you imagine on that day, on Calvary, that moment in time in history in which Jesus had come on the mission of the Father to redeem you and me. And when he cried out from the cross, having completed everything to perfection, saying, to tell us die, he know, knew that in a moment he would be in the Father's presence with a completed mission for your redemption and for mine. Triumph. He did that for me. To tell us die. One word, four syllables, everything. Has it come to mean everything for you? Is Jesus' redemption everything to you? It is the compass, the direction, the point, the power of everything in life. And if it's not, today is a great day to make it that way. It'd be the greatest gift that you give to yourself and the gift to others. You know, it's really blasphemous for us to believe that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. It's all that we need. Prior to the Civil War, prior to one of the deadly wars, battles in the Civil War, eight soldiers met in a tent to pray. And as they met together, they recognized that their chances of death were very high. So they wrote a statement of their faith, declaring their commitment to Christ. They explained that the certainty of their faith in Christ would be a gift to their relatives if they died. So the hymn, My Faith Looks Up to Thee, was included in their statement of faith. Seven of the eight of those soldiers died the next day. And the fourth stanza of that hymn became their epitaph. When ends life's transient dream, when death's cold, sullen stream shall o'er me roll. Blessed Savior, then in love, fear and distrust remove. Oh, bear me safe above a ransomed soul. Do you know unequivocally that you are a ransomed soul? Does your family know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are redeemed by Jesus Christ? It is the greatest gift we give to one another and the greatest gift we give to ourselves. In a few weeks, we will go back into the sanctuary. And we will no longer meet in the gym, I hope for a long, long time, even though it's been fun. What will we remember about our time in the gym? Will we remember the meals that we have taken part in the gym, the basketball games that we have played, the recreation that we've enjoyed, the fellowships, or might we remember a day in October of 2021 when we got on our knees and we thanked God for what he had done for us on Calvary, that he had completed to Telestai, the work is finished. I'm going to invite you in just a moment to make your way to the front. For We have a lot of space up front. You may want to stand, you may want to kneel, you don't have to, but we'll remember this day one way or the other for you to make your way to the front and just kneel. And as we have said all through the service, God, thank you. You did that for me. And some of you maybe have never received Christ, and that is the greatest need of your life. Christ died for us, and we can never take that lightly. He came to redeem us from our sins because he loved us, and he wants us to have a relationship with him. But we can never experience that apart from Christ no matter how many books we read, no matter how many ideas we divulge, no matter how, how many philosophies we embrace, it is only through Christ to tell us die that we can receive eternal life. And you can become a Christian even today by humbly repenting of your sins, acknowledging that Jesus died for every last one, and ask him to forgive you of your sins and become the Lord and Savior of your life. I'm going to lead us in a prayer to that end. And I would invite you to join me if you've never received Christ. May this be the starting point of your relationship with God. And may all of us as followers of Jesus Christ in just a moment, if you, if you desire, just make your way to the front and kneel and thank God for Tetelestai, what he has done for us. Lord Jesus, we recognize that what we have seen in 
witness through your word in these last few moments reminds us of the enormity of the gift that you have given. You didn't die as a hapless, helpless victim on the cross. But as we hear you shout that victorious proclamation to tell us die, we hear you not giving up on life, not dying in misery, but victoriously declaring the mission has been accomplished. Our salvation has been secured. And if any of my friends here in this room or those listening online have never received Christ, may this be the day that they recognize their desperate need for you and call out, Lord Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner in desperate need of your forgiveness. Please forgive me of all my sins and become the Lord and Savior of my life. I surrender to you all that I am and all that I have, and I will follow hard after you the remaining days of my one and only life. God, for those of us that have already committed our life to you and have embraced your forgiveness, the completion of your mission, may we fully embrace it, not trying to earn your favor in other ways, not trying to to do things that will make you like us more, love us more, to realize that you have completely paid the price for our sins. And may we live in that freedom, that glorious freedom. May we live in such a way that it impacts the lives of others. God, maybe for some of us, if we have not yet fully surrendered our life to you, we've called the name of you to be our Lord and Savior, but the greatest gift that we can give to our family is for them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, we have fully surrendered all that we are and all that we have to you. So God, would you now move in our presence? Help us to feel and experience the power of what you have done for us. To tell us, die. in your name we pray. Amen. Let's respond as God leads us.
Cause the grace of Jesus is always wider. It's going on and on and always higher. And the grace of Jesus it lights up higher. Could you light up higher deep down in my soul? Just your voice is singing out. Cause the grace of God bless you.